Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. There is something about the seasons changing, the leaves falling, that little bit of brisk air that cuts through the August humidity and lets you know football is back. And with that, I'm Jack Collinsworth. Welcome to the ND on NBC podcast. I'm Jack Collinsworth, and welcome to week one. Welcome to game week. Notre Dame, Duke, Chase Bryce will be quarterbacking the Duke Blue Devils as they really didn't have a quarterback in the building worth speaking about. And all of a sudden, Clemson transfer. And be careful now. He played a lot of football backing up Trevor Lawrence. You play a lot of second halves. You play a lot of fourth quarters when Trevor Lawrence is the starting quarterback and Davo Sweeney's the head coach. There's a whole lot of blowouts down there in Clemson, South Carolina. So he got some opportunities, and he really did look good when he came into the game. So they have something, assuming that Bryce had time to not only learn everybody's name, maybe make a friend, but also learn this entire Cutcliffe offense stepping in as the Duke quarterback. The entire idea behind this podcast was that I spent all of last year covering those 14 ACC teams, now get a chance to come back over to NBC, cover some Notre Dame football, and before you know it, Notre Dame's playing in the ACC. And so as these two worlds mesh, we want to be able to have guests on from both communities, from Notre Dame land, from the ACC world, uh, and have a smart conversation that's fun in a football season that will be like none other. Just looking around the ACC last year, this was a bunch of young teams. And it's hard to win games when you're a bunch of young teams. Uh, And we saw struggles across the ACC last year outside of Clemson. But now they're a year older, and they're a year better. And it's not like they stunk. These were good young teams that now are going to see what the best of it can be. Uh, Good coaches. And we saw what Scott Satterfield did. Mac Brown coming back. And that said, you better look out, too, if you're the ACC. Because I've been doing nothing the last couple of months but watching Notre Dame football on film. And you may not know all the skill position players, but they're there. Uh, Kyron Williams, you may not know much about him yet, but he's there. Tommy Trimble, he might not be the NFL tight end quite yet, but he's there, and he is the NFL-type tight end. Looks like George Kittle to me. Guy's an unbelievable run blocker, and then he gets an opportunity in the pass game, and you go, oh, okay. Michael Mayer, the freshman, tight end. Looks like one of those Hercules tight ends that we're used to seeing Notre Dame have. Kyle Rudolph, Eifert, should you even think back to the UC days. Brian Kelly coaching Travis Kelsey, probably the best tight end in the world right now, other than maybe a George Kittle. So this is a position that has always existed in a Brian Kelly offense. It has always been so featured, and he knows how to develop. He knows how to recruit, and he knows how to win with them. And as we talk about winning with them, this offensive line now, you got Eichenberg over there at left tackle. You got Hainsey over there at right tackle. I mean, they are two phenomenal pass-blocking, athletic, move-the-feet type tackles lining up next to two guards and Banks and Kramer that are just massive. I mean, they are mountains of men. And they just move people with nothing but power. And then it's an athletic center right there in the middle in Patterson who can trail block, who can reach the backside. 
terrific athlete. So when you talk about the complexion of five offensive linemen playing as one, I'm convinced this might be the best one that Brian Kelly's ever had. Now, he's probably had better individual players, Big Q, Zach Martin, Ronnie Stanley. We all know who those guys are. But when you talk about five across the board in a group, any analytics, any analytics on football conversation will tell you, you want to have a really good player every position. You don't want to have somebody who's terrific at left tackle and a bad right guard. You don't want to have a terrific right tackle and a terrible left guard. You want five rock-solid, really good guys at every position. And Notre Dame may even have five great guys at every position. This group is dangerous, and they have experience. On the topic of experience, fifth-year quarterback Ian Book, I think everything this year starts and ends with Ian Book. And when I talked to him here recently – One of the things that stood out to me most was how excited he was to have Tommy Reese back, young, hungry, and calling the plays. Learning from somebody who's done it, what was it, seven years ago or eight years ago? I don't even know. Like, it makes the biggest difference for me. Um, He's been in the situation. He's been through the pressures. And it's not like he's played quarterback somewhere else. He's been through the same exact pressure that I've been through as a Notre Dame quarterback. And that, to me, just sees an outlet. You know what I mean? It's someone you can talk to. I go into his office every day. Um, we'll, we'll do a meeting about football, and then, bam, we start talking about life or something. You know, like, let's talk about this for a little bit or whatever. He's one of my – I consider him, a, you know, a best friend of mine at the same time a coach. He knows how to switch, um, you know, from being a friend to, all right, it's meeting time. Let's learn. Here's my coach. He'll get on me, you know, and then five seconds later, we're fine. You know, so that's just something in a coach that – um, I wouldn't say is normal. You know, I, I think it's pretty rare. So, and then another one is uh, his memory is unbelievable. Uh, it, he'll call a play or something that he remembers that he ran six, seven years ago, and it'll be spot on. And he'll say, I remember right hash against Purdue. Blah, blah, blah. This was my favorite throw. The Sam took this guy, boom, hit it before the safety. I'm like, what? And then we'll go watch the play. He'll pull it up. The film quality is horrible, but it's perfectly accurate. <laughs> So it's like crazy. So just knowing that he's super smart, smart. He's taught me everything. I can't say enough about it. I really can't. The day he got there as the quarterback coach, I've learned everything from him. And uh, to now have him as a coordinator, I hit the jackpot. You, you guys are going to kick some ass. I'm excited about that. How about Claypool and Komet? What, what's irreplaceable about those two dudes? Uh, I'm so bummed that they're gone. But, I mean, first with Chase, um, I was just watching TV copies of, games because that's how bored I was for a little bit I haven't watched a tv copy of a game ever I watched the whole Georgia game I watched all on YouTube right and just watching Chase go up there and get the 50 50 balls they're not 50 <laughs> 50 they're like 90 10 you know what I mean so it's just having someone like that someone so physical you know his run blocking was unbelievable you know he'd go down and just absolutely lay out somebody on the full other side of the field when that makes a difference if we were to break a run you know what I mean and uh, he was a leader for our receivers, and he was somebody that was just so big and physical and was going to win that battle no matter who it was. That was a huge confident thing for me as a quarterback. Knowing you got a guy out there, it might be 50-50. It didn't even feel like that. So, And it, it felt the same with Cole. Um, Cole's huge, and just having him being able to run block like he can and go out and just – he's a freak athlete. Just go out there and make some crazy catches. Um, and he was just such a calm leader, you know, not the most talkative guy, but was going out there day, you know, day in and day out and just getting the job done. Um, he was so fun to play with. I worked really, really hard on trying to get him back, and I didn't win that battle, but I, I understand why. So now you got to try to replace 
Claypool as he puts on a show up there in a Pittsburgh Steelers uniform. But you have bodies there. Even Javon McKinley is watching some of his stuff. I mean, this dude, they put him on the short side of the field, and they ask him to go in there and dig out safeties and linebackers, and he has no problem getting in there and doing it. Ben Skoranek comes over from Northwestern, and my guess is he becomes the number one wide receiver out of the gates for this season. I think he's just clicked instantaneously with Ian Book and with this program. Uh, then you have Lindsey, then you have, you know, Keys, Lawrence Keys. So there's plenty of bodies, and you'll find who those two or three are going to be to match with a great unit of tight ends. And then, boom, Kevin Austin comes back for that closing stretch. When we started thinking about episode one for the podcast and who we wanted to have on, wanted to take this offseason back to 30,000 feet. And a, a real leader for the Notre Dame side of things through this whole process has been Jack Swarbrick. And I think Jack Swarbrick had a million chances to cancel football season or to postpone football season or to get in line with the Big Ten or the Pac-12. But he always played the patience game. He waited in hopes that this decision would ultimately make itself. And I don't want to say that it necessarily made itself, but this decision wound up going on long enough to where they got a grasp on it. Notre Dame got a grasp on it. The numbers went way down. Um, they figured out, they worked on this virus. They worked on what works to mitigate the spread. They worked on, do, should we do online classes? Should we do in-person classes? How should we approach this on a day-to-day basis? Should we let students around the football team? Uh, should we let parents into football games? Should we let parents see the student athletes at away games? So there was a million different variables that they chose to address head on as opposed to postponing and addressing later. And that is how we've gotten here. And I give Jack Swarbrick a ton of credit for that because he never shied away from the challenge that he knew it would be. He just ran right at it. He ran right at every single one of the challenges. And now there still remains. I mean, this is a week-to-week thing. I don't think we all understand this football season. It may not be we start week one and we go straight through. It may be some brinks in the road. We may have some players that exit the lineup, re-enter the lineup. I think it's going to be crazier than we think. However, we're here. We made it. And at this point, I think it is what it will be. I think it will happen. The teams that have signed up to this point, I believe, will play out the season. Uh, and I'm hope, I hope I'm right about that. And I think with the, the right leadership in charge, that will come to fruition. Somebody else hopes that I'm right. Notre Dame Athletic Director Jack Swarbrick. Let's hear from him right now. Well, it is an honor to welcome the Notre Dame Vice President and Director of Athletics and Jack Swarbrick. And Jack, after the Big Ten and the Pac-12 shut down, there was a national narrative that Notre Dame saved college football. So how did you do it? Well, we didn't, but uh, I love the narrative, right? Always, It's always good to have people say good things about you. Um, you know, we were just part of a larger process that um, – <clears throat> effectively just said at that point, there's no reason to stop now. We may stop down the road, but let's let's continue forward. Let's gather data. Let's see what our experience is and uh, be informed by that. And our experience has been good. We've, we've t- had about 1,200 tests of our football team uh, since June. We've had 12 positives. That's a 1% positive test rate. And so we feel very, very comfortable moving forward. And it was the week of August 11th when both of those conferences decided to shut it down. How did that week unfold from your perspective? Well, it's it uh, in advance of their decisions, the teams we were playing in those conferences called, uh, you know, being the good partners they are and said, look, I think this is what's going to happen this week. You know, so Barry Alvarez from 
from Wisconsin, Mike Bond from USC, Bernard Muir from Stanford. And so we, we had a pretty good sense that that's where it was headed. And um, you know, I, I think you, you then spend a lot of time talking to your colleagues at other schools. What are you thinking about? And um, we did play a little bit of a role in trying to, trying to say we don't have to, that, that's not a signal that we have to do something tomorrow. Let's take our time and think about it. What, what do you think made them pull the plug? What, what specifically was it that made them go that you can't have football season this year? Yeah, I, I think some of it was local differences. Um, you know, I think I don't want to speak for anybody, but certainly the challenges that were going on in Arizona and California at the time, I would, I would assume, played a role. Um, you know, the Big Ten talked about the, the level of uncertainty that surrounded the virus. Mm-hmm. And I think that's absolutely right. And, and it's a little bit about how you resolve that uncertainty, how you think about it. Um, there's a narrative out there that people ignored medical advice or there was a fundamental difference in that medical counsel. That's just not true. I mean, we all, we all were receiving versions of the same information. It identified uncertainties and it was a little bit about how you react to those uncertainties. Um, and it, it, it's reasonable. People drew different conclusions about whether to go back to school. Um, so it makes sense that they might draw different conclusions about whether, whether to participate in athletics. Was there a moment where Notre Dame ever got close to coming to the same decision to postpone or to shut down football? What was the closest you ever came to that? That was probably when we had the, the spike on campus. So much of so much of our decision, as you know, at this place relates to the larger campus dynamic. We're not sitting by ourselves on the side making uniquely athletic decisions. And so, when the when Father John decided in May to come back to school in August, that was a signal for us to prepare to play sports. And then when we had the spike on campus, once we came back and he suspended classes, that was a moment for us to to say, well, we got to see how the school does. And I've heard you mention a handful of times now the data. You've been looking at a lot of data as you've made this decision. What, what specific piece of data made you the most confident that we could get this season underway? Well, the, the, the first and foremost was the performance of our own team. Could they, could they manage it? Could they handle the expectations? Could they conform their own activities to keep themselves safe? And that data has been pretty spectacular for us and could not be more proud of, of the guys on the team. But you're also looking at everything that sort of surrounds you. I mean, we would never want to be in a position where our need for testing uh, used up a, a resource that St. Joe County needed or the broader university needed. And, and so you had to understand that dynamic. Um, and, and the evolving science are around it, you know, especially as the heart issues arose we spent a lot of time trying to understand those issues and making sure we were informed and that we weren't creating some unique risk for our students. Well, help us understand then with the myocarditis stuff, because we, we saw the Penn State report and then we heard the Penn State report that it wasn't true. So now it's just all kinds of mixed signals with, with regard to that. What information do you have? What's real and how did that factor into your final call? You know, it's dangerous for me to get into medical science here, of course, but uh you know, the things that that were uh, most impactful for me was an understanding that this is not some new risk. This attaches to viruses of these natures 
and has for as long as these viruses have been around. We have seen it, we have, we have dealt with it, we've treated it. And, and so we had our own history with it. And, mm -hmm. and, and, and we engage in testing for heart issues as a routine matter. And if someone tests positive, there's a whole range of heart related uh, tests we run to test for myocarditis. So um, there was a level of familiarity with it. It first, it first appeared to me as something unique or new. And as I talked to our doctors and others, I came to understand it's, it's, a, it's a byproduct of viruses of this nature generally. So what that really focused me on was it, the risk still remains the risk of whether you're going to get COVID-19. I mean, that's, that's still what we should be focused on. And there are all sorts of potential consequences of that, heart-related issues being one of them, but we got to go back and focus on that risk. And um, can we manage that risk? And as the ACC developed testing protocols, as we looked at our own experience, I became more and more comfortable that our students frankly, who were engaged in athletics were probably as safe as any students in the country. Mm -hmm. Who did you really lean on? Which doctor specifically were you on a text basis with or a daily calling basis that, that you really trusted with this final decision? Yeah, we have a physician here on, on campus, uh, Matt Leisler, just phenomenal. And Dr. Leisler played football at Harvard. Um, mm -hmm. He has an, an athlete's perspective. But, but he's represented the university externally. So he's on the medical advisory group of the ACC. He's wired into physicians around the country at other schools. And, and so he's been our go-to resource. And uh, I must say that ACC advisory group, sort of the lead, a lead physician from every school, all 15 of them working together was really critical for us because that's where we'd feed our questions. That's where the policies came from. And given the quality of those schools and some of those med centers, to have those physicians available to us was a real resource. And I heard that Notre Dame had a data analytics professor that designed the seating chart for Notre Dame Stadium. Is there truth to that? And then how does the organization of the seating chart come together? Yeah, it's been it's been a really fun experience. Uh, Scott Nessler in the, in the Mendoza College of Business um, decided that... Uh, he wanted to help us out and we're awfully fortunate that he did um, because you're, it's a dynamic you never have on a seating chart. I mean, there are all kinds of software applications that will help you seat an arena and, and you know, feed you the best available seat, but they weren't built to put in social distancing limitations. So if you're trying to maintain six feet around each person, but you're trying to let members of a family unit or dorm mates, residence hall mates sit together, that's an interesting series of factors. So the social distance around a person sitting as a single, the social distance around four people in a family sitting together is all different. And the challenge of then seating the place becomes very hard. Well, he developed a software system which let us feed in those variables and seat the arena or the stadium. Yeah. And uh, it's been an enormous resource to us. So, so essentially, if you live with somebody you can sit with that group of people. And do they enter the stadium? How, how are we going to enter and exit the stadium? Slowly, carefully? Is, is there some strategy to that? Or how do you well, think through it? Yeah, we're going to, you know, it's it's a maximum of 15,000 people right. entering into that big stadium. So I don't, I'm not terribly worried about the queuing um, or the leaving uh, the stadium. Um, 
but we'll we'll suggest to you times to enter and we'll have a pretty big window for you to come in. Um, the roommates don't have to come together. They each have to have their ID. Um, and um, we're gonna encourage in every way we can our students to stay in the seats we assigned to them to, to keep that social distance. But, uh, you know, we, we know we can only have limited success with that, right, Jack? Amen to that. And, and you've always had to have the uh, student ID card, so there's really nothing new there, yeah. uh, anybody that's ever been to a game. But as we know, inside of the stadium is always one thing, but historically, there has been one hell of a party out in the parking lot too. So how do you try to mitigate or slow down the pregames, the tailgates, everything that's such a great part of Notre Dame game day. Yeah, um, it's it, I, it's not going to happen, and I'm very confident we can control that. I mean, first of all, the, the audience we have, we're limited to students, faculty, and staff. And so none of those populations are the ones that traditionally set up in the parking lot for the tailgate. Um, mm -hmm. Students would go join those when their parents or somebody else had them. Um, but 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 so the people who normally engage in that unfortunately can't be with us this year. But we'll we'll patrol the parking lot, and if you take a table out of the back of your car, um, we're going to ask you to put it back in. We're 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 very very committed to not having any tailgating. Yeah, one of the things that I really thought was brilliant. I got in a little argument with Austin. You know Austin Collinsworth, my brother. Well, and he was like, "Why are they coming back a couple of weeks early? It seems like you're just going to start a wildfire." I was like, well, but it also gives you a chance to try to get it under control, which wound up being exactly how it played out. What was your thought process? Who came to the decision with you? That it's probably a good idea to get everybody back and give ourselves a little time here. Yeah, this was all uh, Father John, our new our new provost, um, um, Marilyn Miranda, and the medical experts that they were relying on, especially uh, Dr. Fox, the local health official who's been such a great resource. And, and so I had I was downstream from that decision, but completely supported it for exactly the reason you said. I mean, you knew that dynamic was gonna happen on virtually every campus in America. The students would come back having been pent up for five months. There'd be a period of more social activity than you'd like, and you're gonna get a spike. It's about how you manage that spike. I think Notre Dame has managed that spike brilliantly. And I can say that because it's not my job. Other people have done it. But I think we had three positive tests on campus yesterday. Um, so, so we managed our way through that. But if you hadn't started earlier, it's, it's, it's coming on top of trying to play football, for example, that um, would have made it much harder. So. Really, really pleased with how it worked out. The SEC chose to start football later, and mm -hmm. they get the same benefit, right? So yeah. Alabama, South Carolina, they're going through that spike now and trying to navigate it. But because the SEC started the season later, they got a shot to manage it. So how much do you think the initial rise in cases was a result of classes? And how much do you think it was just the pent-up demand you described of college kids finally getting back around their friends, like what may be different about starting classes up a second time now? Yeah, I, I think um, it was not about classes. Um, there's, there, there, you know, there's probably some dynamic from the dorm, from the residence halls, as you well know, we're, we're a residential education community. The vast majority of our students live in residence halls. So despite everybody's best efforts, you probably, you probably had some transmission through that and a lot of it from social activities. The students here, 
probably had an optimism about their ability to manage that, that that was a little unfounded. But once they had the evidence and understood the risk, they can form their behavior. And um, it's been it's been great to see. You know, the other benefit of starting early, Jack, is um, this is like going to school on the West Coast now. It's uh, it's warm weather, right? I mean, uh, <laughs> you, you, your, your first two months in school are ideal weather. It's great. So you can be outside, which helps a lot. Yeah, probably a good time to invest in some fans, depending on the air conditioning situation, as we all know, as we've all lived through. Uh, is there a possible scenario? We, we, this is such a week-to-week uh, situation. It's so ever-evolving, and you never know what's going to happen next. Is there a possible scenario where football could continue in a bubble, even if students you know, maybe were sent home for online classes or full-time online classes, whatever the case may be? Uh, you know... I'm, I'm, I'm so optimistic about where we are right now as a university that fortunately I don't think I, don't think I have to worry about that. Um, I think we're in really good shape. And, and so we'll be able to move forward. And, and frankly, even if we had a problem, I, I wouldn't think the university would send everybody home. It might look more like, you know, some universities have brought juniors and seniors back or freshmen and seniors or, you know, have different strategies like that. So I don't think we'll be in that position, but we, we sure prefer to, 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 given our model of the student athlete, we sure prefer to play when the students are on campus. Uh-huh. And, and once you decide to play, who do you first talk to about joining the ACC? Who do you first pick up the phone? Is there, was there a possibility ever that you may be in a different conference or, or what was that process behind the scenes? Yeah. Um, you know, Commissioner Swafford and I have worked together yeah. For 12 years now on the college football playoff, BCS before then. So we have a strong relationship. And then, of course, our other sports are in the conference. So it was just a series of telephone calls between he and I. Um, very collegial, very easy. The choice we had to make was whether to build our own schedule, knowing that we were losing USC, Stanford, and Wisconsin, um, or to join the ACC for a year in football. The risk in building our own schedule. And, and there was a period of time there about a month or six weeks where everybody in the country was calling and asking if we wanted to play them. The risk was that their conferences would go all conference. Hmm. And then, then we'd lose those games too. So there was, there was a public report about Alabama and us playing. We absolutely had that conversation. Um, but turns out, Pretty fortunately, we didn't do that because the SEC went all conference a few weeks later. And, and so because we couldn't control that risk, I wasn't comfortable building our own schedule, um, replacing those games with, with games with opponents from the Big 12 or the SEC. And um, the ACC option was clearly the best one. So, so how do you actually design game by game a football schedule? How do you decide that you want to play this team here and that team there? Is that up to you? Is that the conversation? Like, how does that work? Yeah, it is up to me. Um, Coach Kelly's great. Coach Kelly's perspective is you schedule them, I'll play them. And, and so he has not chosen to be very engaged in that. Um, Ron Paulus, who's our uh, administrator for football, is the key person. He makes all the calls and talks to the schools. But it's an unbelievable Rubik's Cube. I mean, I can't tell you. Every time you think you have it put together, something happens and you have to go back and start all over. We're scheduling into the 30s right now and uh, trying to make that all work. Because as you know, we're trying to 
achieve a number of things. We're trying to stay national. So we always want to be on the West Coast and the East Coast every year. We like the opportunity to go to special venues like Fenway Park or Yankee Stadium. We were supposed to play in Lambeau this year. And so you, how do you mix some of those in? We have an obligation to NBC to deliver a certain number of games. That matrix, we have an obligation to the ACC to play five games a year. That, that matrix gets really complicated uh, as you try and, try and build it out. Um, the easy part, because we're scheduling so far out, is that Coach Kelly and I yes, say yes to anything right now. You know, you're, <laughs> you're, you want to play the Green Bay Packers in 33? Sure. That sounds pretty good. Yeah, let's go. I love it. I, you're one of my favorite guys to talk football with, so I want to get a little bit of football in with you. Uh, so I was thinking back to the 4-8 and eight season of 2016, right? And I can remember fans, alumni, there's some group of morons, whoever they were, that, that paid for the ad in the school newspaper coming after Coach Kelly's job, your job, my job, anybody's job that they could think of. And since then, it has been three years with 10-plus wins, all in a row. So what in your gut back then made you double down on Brian Kelly as head coach? Well, the, the first thing is, as you know, I'm around the team a lot. I mean, the fans get to see game day and a bad series of game days that year. But I'm at practice. I'm around the building. I'm, that's when I'm evaluating club coaches. I, you, you can't evaluate a coach on game day. You evaluate him in practice. And that's true of all our sports. And so I knew what I was seeing. I knew we didn't have a broken program. Uh, we had issues. We had some staffing issues we had to address. We had some issues of approach, but the underlying program was still solid. But I, I never will forget the counsel I received from Father Jenkins when I was working through this. And he said, you know, it's not like Brian forgot how to coach. He's, he's, he said 25 years of unqualified success. So we know he can coach and, and, and that's right. I mean, that was the, that was the correct base observation that, okay, we got to be good partners here and figure out together how to fix the things that have to be fixed. And I was so impressed when I sat down with him as we do at the end of every year to review the program where, where, his commitment at the start of that meeting to look at everything. He, he said, there's nothing off the table here. And um, when, when you know that you got a coach who's willing to do that, your confidence level that you can get a fix goes, goes up. And what pillars of the program did you guys really emphasize, hone in on from 16 to today? What, what has really gotten better, changed in that period of time? It revolves around the culture first and foremost. Um, yeah, you can tell. You can yeah, tell. Greater clarity about who we are, what we're doing, but how you implement that culture. As you know, a key, college is different in, in that the person who spends the most time with the student athletes or the people are the strength conditioning staff. Because yeah. the NCAA limits the time coaches can spend with the student athletes, but they're with the strength conditioning staff a lot. So the, the culture set by the head coach has to be articulated and reinforced in the strength conditioning area. Mm -hmm. And so building that culture there, Matt Bayless came in and has really helped us with that. And that's a big part of the cultural difference. So making sure that message is being carried by the trainers and the nutritionists and everybody else who touches the student athletes, um, making some staff decisions designed to get the culture exactly what we wanted. Um, 
we needed uh, we needed a different relationship between the players and the staff. Um, and the and the players told us that Brian met with every single player at the end of the year and said, "What do we have to do to get better?" And the message was really clear about engagement with the players and the culture that needed to be established. And I got to tell you, the culture right now is so strong with this program. We could pick 16 guys as captains this year. Um, it is it is in a really good place. It's, it's amazing because when you talk to the players, like you're saying, that's where you hear that new message from first is how much they love going to work and being a part of the program. And that's what's so important. And, and on the field, uh, you have seen some awesome offensive lines roll through Notre Dame players, but also units. How does this 2020 offensive line compare to some of the best you've ever seen? Yeah, we'll find out, of course. Um, you know, it's not it's not fair to compare him to one that's got McGlinchey and and Q and um, Ronnie Stanley all lining up together. Um, but this is a really good line with a lot of experience. Um, every one of these guys can continue to play professionally if they choose to. Um, they're at, they have that level of talent, but they're really committed to, um, you know, offensive linemen, they move around campus like an amoeba. They're all, they're all, they're all a group. They're inseparable. Um, and, and this group certainly has that dynamic, but boy, are they committed to, to having a, a really good year. The, the way they work, the way they communicate with each other. I'm not going to compare them to others, but there's a lot of talent and the right level of commitment. Yeah, and we, we both know that championships will remain the standard at Notre Dame, as it should. And we're getting, we're getting a lot closer uh, now. What do you think is still needed within this program to go from making the playoff, consistently being in that conversation as we are right now, to winning it? Um, I think building on the success. I don't, you know, you're always trying to bring the best talent you can to mm -hmm. to a program, and and there will always be focus, an outsized focus on recruiting. You know, it's it's what people love to talk about eight months a year. Yeah. Um, but for us, it's much more about fit. If if we can if we can find talented people, the people who fit here, who who understand this place and want to be here for the right reasons, we can build a consistent championship contender. And that's the goal for us is um, continue to continue to make the progress we're making culturally, increase the talent where we can do it. But, you know, look at the number of people playing key roles in the NFL from this program in the past six years. Um, look at the number of them who have a C on their jersey in the NFL. Um, we're, we're, we're producing a high level of talent. Um, we can always get better in that regard. But for us, we, we have a bigger, we suffer a bigger cost when we miss on fit because mm -hmm. we're not bringing in a transfer. We're not, you know, you, if you miss on somebody, you carry that miss for a couple of years and we never miss athletically. We miss on fit sometimes. And and we pay a price for that that other schools don't necessarily pay. So we need to continue to focus on fit, talented young men who fit well because they'll stay here, they'll develop here, and in their third and fourth years, they'll be championship caliber players. 
Well, Jack, going all the way back to March, you really have personified to me what a leader should be in difficult circumstances, been diligent, detailed, and you made Notre Dame proud every step of the way. So we appreciate everything you've done. Jack Swarbrick, thank you for your time today, too. Hey, thanks for having me. I look forward to seeing you in person with masks on, but in person. Amen to that. Well, we are about 48 hours from making the trip up to South Bend, Indiana. I made a lot of trips the last few years, but not enough back home to Notre Dame. And so that's going to be a great trip. We're fired up about it. Notre Dame, Duke headed your way. Hit us with the old like, rate, review, all of those things so we can pass up all the SEC podcasts. And next week, it is Tony Dungy. How about Tony Dungy? Going to be calling some Notre Dame football. We'll break down his first call in just about seven days. Cheers to you. Enjoy the weekend. Football is back. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.